Playoff time is when things start getting serious on the court. Players are more driven than ever to win these big games and keep advancing. Goodyear knows all about being more driven, too. Working hard to help you advance on and off the road. Let Goodyear.com help you choose what's best. Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. Um, Andrew, what am I supposed uh, to say, though? Brian Windhorst and the Hoop Collective. And what else am I supposed to say? Uh, you're supposed to say subscribe, rate, and review because we definitely need those things. Can I just say that I'm a, I'm a very uh, avid podcast listener, but I don't subscribe to any podcasts. When I want them, I just go get them. He doesn't right. want to subscribe to any podcast he would have him as a listener. That's right. <laughs> and so I don't understand why subscribing – I think this whole metric is flawed. Um, and I was an early podcast adopter many, many years ago. And yet I am judged. Is my listenership not valid to, to anybody because I don't subscribe to these podcasts? I'll have you know I don't subscribe to this podcast. How about that? You should subscribe to this one. Well, you, you, you really should. should. Definitely it's do much that. more yeah. convenient, right? Uh, all right. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Um, we have uh, a couple of West Coast guys joining us today, in addition to Andrew. Uh, up in Seattle is Kevin Pelton. Kevin, good morning. Hey, good to be back. And we have in Los Angeles Kevin Arnovitz. Um, so we have Arnovitz and Pelton, two Kevin. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be sort of flippant, but I'm going to address you by your last names during this podcast. You, if that's just address me as Shlomo today. Shlomo. Um, Sfi. I'm going to call you Sfi. Sfi. Yes. Um, uh, so this is something that you guys have done in the past. This is my first experience with it. We're calling it small sample size theater. Uh, because we're about, most teams are about 12 to 14 games in. Still a little early, although some teams are making some pretty big decisions, such as, you know, trading star players and cutting guys like Carmelo Anthony. Um, but, uh, Pelton, I'm going to start with you. So far, as you look at things in the small sample size theater, what, um, what are some of the things that are jumping out to you? Well, maybe we should start with kind of the, the general league-wide trend, which, you know, obviously in the first few days of the season, everyone was marveling at how many points per game the league was scoring. It was up, I think, uh, when I wrote about it after the first weekend of the season, over 113 points per game, which at that point was going to be the most we had seen since the 1960s. And lo and behold, that uh, even though scoring generally tends to improve a little bit over the course of the season, that has proven to be a small sample size fluke to some extent, as it's down now to uh, 110.7 points per game, which would still be, you know, the the most we've seen in the the post merger era, but no longer by nearly the same kind of scale. Uh, what was it last year? Fluke. Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, let's see. It finished last year at 106.3. So that's a, still a pretty big jump year is, over yeah. year. Okay. Yeah, especially because of the fact – I mean, the one interesting question is how much it's going to continue to keep coming down. Again, that's not the trend. Usually it gets higher over the course of the season. And, you know, if you look at compared to where we were through uh, the same number of games or the same date last year, it was at 105.7 points per game. So that's still a five-point jump. But it doesn't – you know, it, at one point the idea was, okay, well, scores in the 130s are going to become the new normal. And I, I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. Hey, so, Kevin – is the league shooting the three better? Are they shooting the two better? I mean, where is it just a possession thing, or or actually guys are better at shooting the basketball? It is it has been a little of both in terms of the pace increasing and efficiency increasing. If you look again compared to this same date last year, pace in terms of possessions per game is up about two point six percent, but then offensive efficiency per hundred possessions is up about two percent. And uh, hot three-point shooting was kind of a factor in this early, but you know now it's it's back down at 35%, which is uh, a percentage point lower than it was at the end of last year. That's that's one of those categories that'll probably improve over the course of the season. Pace tends to come down; teams tend to slow down. But see, that doesn't it, surprise me, Kevin, because I feel like um, 
more people are shooting threes and maybe not all of them should be shooting threes. So while I would not, while I'm not surprised about the volume of three point shooting going up, the Aaron Baineses of the world chucking three and four a game may not be smart. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the percentage fall, but the volume to go up. That's just, you know, anecdotal. Yeah, I think it's going to end up pretty similar. I mean, that's kind of one of the fascinating takeaways of the the three-point evolution is that the the percentage that the league as a whole makes has generally been pretty flat since they moved the line back in or back out rather uh two decades ago. And what really tends to change what's really changed is you know, basically teams are able to attempt a lot more shots now while still making somewhere in the range of 35% of them. So you would say that three-point shooting over the years has not actually improved. It's just the amount of guys who are shooting 35%. Has, right. So, I mean, effectively has it has improved because you're taking increasingly more difficult shots, especially the last few years as we've seen the rise of, you know, a bunch of players shooting threes off the dribble at a high volume following Steph Curry's lead but the actual accuracy has, has stayed in the same range. Okay, Mr. Arnovitz, what, uh, what for you? Is there anything that for you that stood out so far that fits our small sample size theater model? Yeah, like I'm always interested in the teams that are they overperforming? Is this real? Is this a fluke? Are they going to come down to earth? Or are they the 2014-15 Warriors, right? I mean, you know, is this sustainable? So like, you know, like I look at a Denver team that's, yeah, I think this morning, is it third in defensive efficiency? No, they've dropped a fourth by a tenth of a point. But like, this is what we know about the Denver Nuggets of recent years. They were 23rd last year. They were 29th the year before. I mean, basically... The book, as we know, on this incarnation of the Denver Nuggets is really interesting young team, but can't defend. They get Paul Millsap back, so, like, that's real, because Paul Millsap's a great defender. He's versatile, he's strong, he can defend multiple positions. But, like, is he, let's raise the team from 23rd to 3rd good? So, Kevin Pelton, are the Denver Nuggets going to be a top 5 or even a top 10 defensive team this season? Is that small sample size theater, or is that, like, a big old production that's going to run for many years. Yeah, I would say that that's probably more small sample size theater than uh, it is. It is something that's going to be sustainable. And, you know, they were, they were much higher a couple games ago, even though they haven't dropped far in terms of the rankings, they're much closer to the rest of the pack. And then offense, you know, kind of, it's weird because I don't think that their start was fluky. I think that how they were succeeding at the start of the season was fluky because we think of them as this all offense, no defense team. And that's, you know, maybe a little unfair with Millsap. I think they had, that is the ghost of Doug Moe in our consciousness, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my expectation was that they were going to be, they could be maybe average on defense this year and and top five on offense, and that would be a pretty potent combination. And I still think that's probably what we're looking at because you know, in terms of. So uh, one thing I'm looking at a lot early in the season is the second spectrum data that we have access to at ESPN. Uh, you have your, your shot quality kind of based on where the shots are taken, what kind of shots they are, and then how close nearby defenders are. And Denver at the early se- part of the season was really underperforming their shot quality on offense while overperforming it on defense. And we've started to see those two even out a little bit over the last few games. I'm glad you mentioned Doug Moe, Kevin, because um, Doug Moe does not get the credit that he should from modern NBA fans. Uh, well, when was he the head coach? Was it the early 80s? Yeah. And, you know, this team's played in Denver. He thought they had an altitude advantage, and so he wanted to play up-tempo. He didn't – I don't think he framed it as points per possession like um, people do today to explain the math. Um but one of the things that Doug Moe tried to do is he believed that if you could get 20 shots more per game than your opponent, and I think he felt like the magic number was about 100 shots. If they could get up 100 shots in 48 minutes and roughly get 20 more shots than their opponent, that that was the formula that was required to be victorious. And so his teams played kind of the style of basketball that we see today. Um, and, uh, you know, he was kind of ahead of his time in that regard, and he doesn't get the credit for it. Well, he also doesn't get, you know, what he also said, he said, cafeterias are my favorite place to eat out. A lot of people wouldn't be caught dead in a cafeteria, but where else can you inspect a prepared entree before ordering it? That is the great Doug Moe. There are... <laughs> 
<laughs> but but do you do you agree with that? Expecting, I mean, uh, the entrees are not always uh, desirable in a cafeteria setting. You, you know, the efficiency of the food is relatively low. Yes, the food is so bad, but in such large portions. <laughs> if it's our ESPN cafeteria, then the quality is, is terrific. In addition to that, that feature. Well, that's well, uh, certainly how we eat in the NBA every night. And let's just say that the food in the NBA um, arenas is, at least for the media, is uh, not is not strong. I, I was actually I came across that quote because I was looking for a Doug Bo quote where he actually talks about what you were talking about, which is that you know in his classic self deprecating way, he's like. Hey, people say we're last on defense. Yeah, we just have more possessions. I don't, I'm not a smart guy, but I know enough to know that points per game is a stupid stat. I mean, Doug Moe was the first guy publicly, you know, inside the game to say points per game is a stupid way to evaluate offense and defense. So that was the quote I was looking for. And so I Googled Doug Moe quotes. Instead, I get a quote about a cafeteria. <laughs> Which makes sense because uh... – to, to, to take the serious tack here, you know who kind of popularized the idea of points per possession? Mike D'Antoni. No, Dean Smith, way back in the oh, day really? in North Carolina, okay. wrote about this in a, a book he did. They used it for years. So all of his, uh, his, you know, his former players who ended up becoming coaches in the NBA were kind of ahead of the curve on that. I see. All right. Um, so, Pelton, anything else uh, got you interested? Um, I mean, we should probably talk about the Milwaukee Bucks and how dominant yes. they've been. I mean, uh, you know, they got a, a great win last night in Denver. The fact that they've lost a couple close games, including overtime to the uh, the Clippers the day before at Staples, has maybe thrown people a little bit off the scent since they're second in the Eastern Conference. But in terms of point differential, you know, in terms of net rating, uh, they're a hair ahead of the Golden State Warriors so far for number one in the NBA. And I, I think it's fascinating to, to ask the question of, you know, how sustainable their start is going to be. Can I just take a 30-second timeout? It'll be longer than 30 seconds, but then again, so are 30-second timeouts in the NBA. And can I rail about League Pass right now? Do you guys have, an, you guys have a problem with that? And I know that I'm gonna, I'm gonna hear, I'm probably gonna hear from the league office on this, and I don't care. All right, I have a problem with league pass. So last year, and this has actually been the case for a few years, I live in Omaha, Nebraska, and I know that nobody cares about Omaha, Nebraska in the NBA. I care about it, Omaha, Nebraska, but it, but it points to a larger issue. And like, I have a friend who lives in Pittsburgh who can't watch the Cavs games. Uh, and he can't, you know, because he's got the same issue. All right. So I get some regional Oklahoma City Thunder games and some regional, uh, Fox regional games of the, uh, of the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's the same channel. Some nights I get one, some nights I get the other. All of them are blacked out on League Pass. And in the, when the spring comes around and there's Kansas City Royals preseason games, sometimes I get none of them and they're blacked out. All right. Well, this has been a burden. Now, this year, out of nowhere, for no reason I can understand, I don't get Denver Nuggets games. Good sirs, I am an eight hour drive from Denver, Colorado. It is an hour and 25 minute flight. It's hundreds, it's probably 500 miles. There is, there is no possible way for me, you know, altitude is not available on my cable system whatsoever. And I am being blacked out of Denver Nuggets games. And last night I could not watch the Bucks Nuggets game because, uh, it was blacked out. And, uh, I just do not accept this as a reasonable thing for a premium paying customer. And unlike some people in the NBA who are, who get it for free, I pay the full freight out of my own pocket for NBA league pass. And I find it unacceptable that there are three teams, including a team that I have no chance to see that is 500 miles away that I am being blacked out. And in this day and age with this technology, that is unacceptable. And I, and I am furious about it and I will not take any other way than, than it's, than it's being worked on immediately. That's all I have. Now, what'd you want to say about the bucks? Sorry. <laughs> well, rightfully so. If you had to miss that game, it was a, a very entertaining game between the bucks. And I have that. no idea what happened in the game. I, I know what there was in the box score. Um, well, Brooke Lopez made eight threes. I suppose you saw that in the box score. 
So to, I, I guess if, in, unless Kevin wants to jump in here, I'll, I'll answer my own question to say that I, I think this is pretty sustainable for Milwaukee so far. Uh, one thing I've, I've written about a little bit in the past is there's this interesting aspect, and, and Ben Falk wrote a really good piece about this a couple of years ago during the playoffs for cleaning the glass, that you know, kind of the things that make your shot selection efficient on offense tend to also work against your shot selection on defense because usually you're playing small, you you have a stretch four, all those sorts of things, and those kind of teams aren't as effective defensively. And Milwaukee this year so far seems to have cracked the code on you know having a really great shot distribution at both ends of the court. So they're third in terms of shot quality by the second spectrum metrics on offense where they're, they're also shooting quite a bit better than that because Lopez is off to such a hot start and, and Giannis and all that sort of thing. But defensively, they have the very best shot quality in the league. So I, I am in I mean, Kevin, it's profound because I'm a big fan of uh, quantified shot probability, which also takes into account this is second second cut. I'm Who's a big fan of shot? quantified shot probability. So Brian, <laughs> you would actually, this is, it, it is the most Brian Winhorse stat. And I'm going to tell you, you, you can ridicule me, Brian, as you, as you rant against um, the presence of rectangular states in your midst that won't allow you to watch basketball. But what quantified shot probability is not just, takes into account the shot quality, but who is taking the shot? So, like, there are shots you would give up to, uh, you know, Andre Roberson that you wouldn't give up to, say, uh, Steph Curry. So, like, that particular stat, it, it's not in a vacuum. Like, it actually takes in the context, like, who is the guy that you're allowing the shot to? Milwaukee is farther ahead of number two Portland in that category defensively than the distance between number two Portland and number eight Orlando. Like, they are, like, this is why I'm kind of bullish on them. Kevin, tell me if I'm wrong and, and kind of clamp down on my enthusiasm. But, like, they're doing kind of warriors stuff from 2014 out 2015. I'm not suggesting they're about to rip off three out of four championships. But they are kicking the crap out of opponents. Which you're not, seems you're to not be, ready to predict that they're going to win three of the next four? I'm not ready to do that. But I do know that kicking the crap out of opponents, uh, when you want to measure whether a team has staying power, am I correct, Kevin, is a pretty good indicator traditionally? Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, at this point of the season and really throughout, point differential is a better predictor of your win percentage going forward than your win percentage right. so far. And, then and they are the had, league leaders. Yeah, and they've also had, you know, the the early schedule I don't think was particularly challenging. They had a lot of home games at the start, but this is this was a brutal West Coast road trip that they went through. Portland at Portland at Golden State and then back to back at Clippers at Denver and to to go 2 and 2 and, you know, have a, a pair of uh, pretty lops or have a lopsided win, I guess, at Golden State and in that slate was pretty impressive. Um and what's even crazier is uh like I mean it's, they're giving up a shot quality below 50, which I just can't even recall seeing in the last couple of years. Like that is, I mean, basically they are, they are inviting, they are inviting teams to just basically turn in terrible offensive performance. They are, they are, they are giving teams no opportunity for high percentage shooting on a possession by possession basis. They are, they are averaging 41 three pointer attempts per game, which is number one in the league. And, just uh, 30 two-point attempts. Um, Brooke Lopez is averaging seven three-point attempts per game. Um, is this sustainable for them? Are they going to continue to shoot 42 threes a game? Can Brooke Lopez – now, Brooke Lopez is shooting 42%. Um, per, he's basically making three out of every seven threes um, that he's taking per game. Can Brooke Lopez continue to make three three-pointers a game? Uh, I don't know. Maybe he can. I'm just saying. Like one of the things about this Bucks team that was a, a you know people thought they weren't going to be able to do is shoot. That was their their supposed downfall, and they've still got some guys out there who are suspect. You know, Giannis is a terrible outside shooter. He's uh, shooting seven um, percent on the season from three point range. Uh, he's not taking that many, but nonetheless, um, their rookie uh, Dante Divincenzo. He's uh, shooting 25% on ch- shooting four three-pointers a game. Um, can this volume keep up to create the kind of spacing that Giannis is using to be able to get to the rim? 
I don't think the volume. I, I think the volume will stay up. I don't think they'll keep shooting quite this well. Uh, you know, I think you know DiVincenzo is maybe the one guy, and, and maybe Eric Bledsoe who are due to shoot a little bit better than they have so far. But you know, Middleton's at forty six percent, Brogdon's forty four, uh, Lopez, as you mentioned, forty two. Uh, even John Henson at 38, which is one of the most improbable developments of the season, that John Henson is both, both shooting and making three-pointers, despite the fact that he's also been a hack-a-shack candidate in the past. I think that's a that's a first in NBA history to have that, that particular combination <laughs> right. of skills. Uh, yeah, but I, I think they'll settle back down a little bit. Their offense probably won't stay quite this good, but I think they're going to keep shooting him. I mean, Bud is very committed to it, and uh, Brooke Lopez, he's like firing with reckless abandon from three. That, I Clearly. guess, what you didn't see not watching the game last night is, you know, the, the last three he made, I think, uh, it, was the, it was the last, at least in the stretch, where he was going nuts. He made a three from the hash mark. I mean, I've never seen a seven-footer shoot from out there. Did he really point good. at the ground? Did you see this last night, Trey Young? Trey yes. Young hit a hit a three from like maybe thirty feet, thirty two feet in L.A. and he pointed at the ground like, remember this is where I shot it from. That's why. <laughs> um, okay, he also so I, uh, airballed the three late in the game. Uh, yes, Kevin, do you uh, because you know a lot about Coach Bud? Has he used these squares? Do you know about these practice court squares before? I am going up there in a few weeks, but I am—I am—I I know of the practice squares. I cannot confirm nor deny whether there are squares in the um, in the Bucks facility. Oh, there are. Um, that that I can confirm. All right, then you can confirm uh, that. So, do you know about this technique? I'm not saying he's the only one who does it. No, educate me. I do not know about this technique. So, uh, so apparently, you know. One of the, they have this beautiful brand new practice facility in Milwaukee. And the first thing Bud did was order the court to be defaced. And they put down these squares that, that basically he wants these players to be within these squares as they practiced offense. And in theory, um, when, you know, the, the, the concept transfers over to a game that the player Make sure that in his mind he's in this square because it, um, you know, he puts him on the court. They're t- I don't, I don't, I think they're probably taped down, not, but they're, I know that they're like purple or blue on the court so that they stand out. And the concept is that the player has got to remain in that zone, sort of his own zone to absolutely make sure that there's spacing. Because one of the things that happens during games is players float a little bit or they maneuver or whatever, and the spacing breaks down. And so the concept is to to do muscle memory and to do court memory, that as they practice, these guys have to stay in these squares on offense. And it sort of, you know, Keeps them remembering to consistently and constantly stretch the floor. I'm, I'm not saying the bud came up with it, but this is something that he brought to their day in and day out practice technique that, you know, reinforces the concept of always, always, always thinking about spacing. Which to your point, when you have Giannis Antetokounmpo as your offensive centerpiece, a guy who doesn't offer range, the, the, it is imperative that the guys around him actually are space because you know that guy in and of himself his spacing is essentially vertical and you know everybody else it, it, it's kind of east west i mean they, there needs to be i mean he needs a layer of space around him he doesn't need that big of a layer because he's just freaky um what's interesting is i'm um kevin let me ask you a question so i'm looking at kind of what i call the lucky column on second spectrum which are teams that are overperforming the quality of the shots they're getting Am I correct to assume teams that might regress, or for that matter, teams that have gotten some rough luck early on? And I think I remember Orlando being one of these teams early last year when they came out to that Jackrabbit start. That yep. uh, you'd look at these columns and like, eh, this isn't this isn't real. Because I have right now is if you go to the QSM column, um, I have as our quote luckiest teams: Sacramento, Milwaukee, Golden State, Charlotte, Indiana, as sort of the top five teams whose uh, Shot probability is, uh, or, or their shot, their effective field goal percentage is, uh, is that much better than the expected shot. Yeah, and so one thing I haven't looked at is, you know, again, you're you're using the version that takes into account who's doing the shooting in addition to just where the shots are coming from, and I'm not sure, you know, when those two that discrepancy starts to become meaningful because, you know, the the 
the season-long average that it's based on right now is still only a handful. Well, because this is why I use that column. And I'll tell you there's a story behind why I use that column. When you use the regular column that doesn't take into account, every single season the Golden State Warriors outperform their – Right. Because they're because it's because it's because they don't take into account who Steph Curry is, who Clay Thompson is. So I always found that like this isn't really useful. All this tells me is the Golden State Warriors make shots they have no business making. Well, of course, look at the personnel. So I like to go over to this other column that says, "Yeah, let's take into account who these guys are." And then all of a sudden, it flattens it a little bit, and it gives you, at least for me, and you're far, 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 infinitely more advanced than I am in this area. But I just found that like if I keep going to that stat and keep seeing that, oh, guess what? The Golden State Warriors are the team in the league that are most outperforming their shot quality. That's not telling me anything that I don't know. Right. Right? It's just telling me that just they're unconscious and they've been so for five years. Yeah, as I look at it right now, I think it does a better job of matching kind of my conventional sense of who's playing over their head, starting with, you know, you mentioned Sacramento as the the leader in that category and uh they're a team that, well, I think, you know, the the way they're playing under Dave Yeager, the just pushy at every single opportunity with this relentless pace that wears teams down almost defensively has helped them. I mean, still, I, I, I'm unconvinced that, uh, you know, Buddy Heald is going to stay the most efficient, you know, outside the most efficient high score in the league and that De'Aaron Fox has improved as much as we've seen from last year. I mean, Milwaukee is benefiting a little bit, but then, you know, still in terms of quantified shot probability has, you know, one of the six best shot distributions. So I think they're going to stay really good offensively. Um, the Clippers are maybe a team we should touch on. Andrew Hahn's beloved Clippers, because they're a team that seems to have benefited from, you know, probably some some better than expected shooting at the offensive end of the court, and then worse than expected shooting at the defensive end of the court. Andrew, everybody loves an underdog story. Don't you love an underdog story? I love dogs, so maybe I'll love this too. Is there, do you have a favorite underdog of all time? Is it Joel Embiid? Never starting even organized basketball to like 2009 and becoming one of the best players in the NBA just a few years later. Yeah, Is that's a good one. The Cavs coming back from 3-1 down in the 2016 finals. Oh, that's a great one. That's a classic underdog story. Um, how about the underdog story of Simply Safe? Now, you may say to yourself, what does a security system have to do with an underdog story? Well, I'm glad you were thinking that, Andrew, because I'm going to tell you. Um, like a decade ago, if you wanted a security system, you had to go through like these huge companies. They made you sign these expensive long-term contracts and all these fees, and their systems were outdated. But that was when Simply Safe started, and they started in a kitchen from an electrical engineer. He was a guy named Chad Lorenz, and he was like, I don't want to do it the same way. I want to have my own style of security system that I'm going to just make for me and my friends. And he also didn't want to treat people poorly like some of these security systems do. And now like Simply Safe is ubiquitous. You see it all over the place. It's like all these magazines and rating systems um, have it as their chop choice for home security. And they're no longer an underdog. There's now over 2 million people that trust this system to keep them safe. Not bad for a security company that started off in a kitchen. So, Andrew, I think you should protect your home with Simply Safe today and support our show, The Hoop Collective, by ordering your system at simplysafe.com slash hoop. Let them know we sent you, please. Um, that's simplysafe.com slash hoop. Simplysafe.com slash hoop. That's, uh, that's exactly what I was thinking about, Brian. How did you know that I was wondering about this? Well, you know, we live in complicated times, and sometimes we all need a little security. The Celtics come in uh, to the week, I believe, 27th in offense. Um, I think that's where they're at. Um, really struggling uh, in certain aspects of it. Uh, and certainly we expected Gordon Hayward to struggle a little bit. Uh, I just can't believe that, you know, he's, he's shooting less than 40% from the field. Um, but... Their their functionality as an offense has really been down. Um, uh, J- uh, Jason Tatum, who I expected to have uh, a really great year, has um, his isolations are up. Uh, their overall team is down, and 
you know, they lost again last night. They're, I think they're only a game over 500. And granted, they've had a bit of a challenging schedule so far. But what do you guys see from the Celtics? Is this small sample size uh, maybe making them look worse than they actually are? I think probably a little bit worse. I think, you know, their shot quality hasn't been great either early in the season. You mentioned Tatum's isolations. They're, they're playing a lot one-on-one, relying probably more than they should on long twos. And, you know, Brad Stevens had a quote after last night's game. I think, uh, so on this road trip, they've trailed by at least 13 points going into the fourth quarter of all three games. And then they ended up winning the Phoenix game in overtime in a semi-miraculous comeback, and their comebacks fell sh- uh, efforts fell yeah. short. I'm going to go ahead and give it miraculous. Qual- I'm going to call that miraculous, not even semi-miraculous. It was miraculous. <laughs> well, the fact that it's the Suns were the opponents, that's why it's only semi-miraculous. Oh, uh, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, he was like, well, we need to find a way to play with the same level of urgency for all four quarters. But I think the other thing that stood out watching that Blazers-Celtics game second half closely last night was their shot distribution got way better in the second half, too. All of a sudden, they started taking a bunch of threes, and it turns out those are those are better shots than the uh, isolations and long twos. And then they kind of went back to that in the, down the stretch and, and lost the ball movement, and all of a sudden, they, they their comeback attempt fell apart. So, you know, I think that's got to be kind of part of the challenge is how do we get this team to share the ball and shoot efficient shots all game long instead of just doing it when we fall behind. And, you know, it's kind of, I, I wonder if Jason Tatum might've gotten a little gassed up based on what happened in last year's playoffs. Um, uh, yeah. I also saw uh, he had been working out with Kobe Bryant over the summer <laughs> who, who, yeah. who told him to quote, shoot every time. Um, and while <laughs> I think, I think we can have a more protracted debate about Kobe and his legacy and, and all the rest of it, and uh, not the day or time for that. Uh, you know, Kobe might, for a guy working kind of in a system, um, kind of still establishing habits, like maybe not the best advice or, 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 or kind of tactical <laughs> handbook if you're trying to create an efficient offense. The, the, let me just take, again, 30-second timeout. Uh, this is why Kevin Arnovitz is who he is. Maybe, you know, quote, maybe not the best tactical handbook. Uh, go on. <laughs> just I, it just it kind of you, you, I don't know that you want to mamba up that offense right now. Um, you know, it's predicated on so many different guys with such multiple skill sets. I mean, Al, you know, you got to utilize Al Horford. Um, you know, probably the best, one of the best facilitating bigs. I mean, obviously Kyrie's the best. I, I think. I mean, Kevin, there's the statistic for this, but I mean, among the best finishing shot makers in the league. I mean, just ISO for ISO, but like. You know, Tatum, I think, worked really well last year because he worked within a system. Granted, the defenses weren't aim-planning for him, but he was an important cog in a relatively – they were not all that good offensively last year. But but he worked – that offense was systematized. And what I see in the first half of these games – I mean, I watched that first half in Portland from the press room last night in Los Angeles – and I mean, that was just like that was like the Ricky Davis All Stars. I'm like, this is the Boston Celtics. Um, Pelton, um, who were the Ricky Davis All Stars once upon a time? Yes, right. They were. Uh, that's right. Um, Al Horford is not playing well. Uh, he's got the lowest PER of his career, I believe, since his rookie year. Early on in the season, his shooting percentages uh, are as low as they've been pretty much since his rookie year. Um, he's shooting down under 30% on three-pointers while taking the most three-pointers of his career. Um, he's averaging just 12 points a game, which is the lowest since his third since his second season. Um, anomaly, or is this Al not getting taken care of in the offense, or what? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's probably a part of it. I mean, everything I mentioned earlier about, you know, we need they need to play with ball movement and avoid isolations. Well, that's that's a much better system for Al Horford. The uh, the ISO system isn't going to do much for him. I think the three-point shooting is probably pretty fluky in the early going. He's probably not the 43% shooter he was last year. He's probably, you know, closer to the 36% he shot in his career, but I doubt he's the uh, the 28% shooter we've seen so far this season and 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 that's probably going to to help the Celtics when that happens uh, as well. The Houston Rockets. What are we seeing in their situation that you think will improve or stay stay difficult? Well, to go back to Kevin's quantified shot-making tab on the second spectrum, 
the Houston Rockets are last and uh, also by a wide margin. They're, you know, they're making 4.7%, shooting 4.7% worse than you'd expect based on, you know, the shot quality and who's taking those shots. No one else in the league is below 3.4%. Oklahoma City, who really started slowly but has started to recover a little bit. So, you know, I think they're they're inevitably going to shoot the ball better than they have. Uh, I, I think I'm curious, you know, Chris Paul, how much of this is, the elbow, how much of this is small sample size and how much of this is him maybe taking a step backwards as he gets into his, his, uh, deeper into his 30s. I mean, I think that's probably the question much more than mellow or anything like else that's anything like that that's going to uh, determine what the rest of their season look like. You know, when you start ranking the, hey, if you wanted to give fan bases hope, I like to look to that column, right? And Houston would be one, as, as, as Pelton mentioned, OKC, the Cavs, for whatever it's worth. Um, the Pistons haven't shot the ball as well as they should have. Boston is actually the fifth team on that list. You know who's not like all that far up that list? Are the Washington Wizards. Like, like if you if you were looking for optimism and saying, hey, they've just been cold, like you would not go to the Wizards. And they are pretty much within a point of where you'd expect them to be offensively. And I just wonder, Kevin, like when we look at small sample size theater. Are the Wizards just bad? Is it just possible that they're just that this is not? Oh, they're better than this. The component parts, the chemistry. That are they just a bad basketball team? I don't think they're a bad. Well, they're a bad basketball team if they have this level of effort. I mean, they are. Uh, you know, they're, they're shot making on defense. They've they've opponents have probably been a lot little hotter than you'd expect yeah. based on their shot profile. But you know, I I mean, I think the the big question offensively is just kind of. You know, is, is John Wall still at that star level where he can be the the focal point of a, a really? He good better be uh, Pelton. He's got a two hundred million dollar extension kicking in in next year. Right, that's what I was leading up to, and then and Zach Lowe wrote about this last week. Is sort of their dilemma of you know, is there even if they wanted to trade John Wall, is there anyone who would actually take him on that contract? And it's it's not real clear that there is. Well, I can tell you that the answer to that is no. I mean, you, you know, only if they send back a contract that is humongous to Washington. If you're asking me how could Washington trade John Wall under the current contractual issues, which are he's owed a huge amount of money, plus he's owed a trade kicker that would be in the tens of millions, I believe, um, if he were to be traded. I don't see how they could make a deal and get – and, and and retrofit their team. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a non-starter. Uh, maybe in a year from now, when he's into that contract and the trade kicker changes a little bit, maybe we can have a discussion. I just don't think that's a feasible discussion right now. Um, what about Philadelphia? Um, they now have made a major adjustment to their team, bringing in Jimmy Butler. Um, they are not ranking very well as a team from an efficiency standpoint. Um, what is your evaluation on what that will mean for them? Yeah, I know Kevin had flagged them as a team to look at based on the fact that uh, they've been scoring more efficiently this season with Ben Simmons on the bench. And, and that's a case where I think if you look at the shot quality, it's pretty clearly a case of just kind of randomness and shooting early in the season. Uh, you know, they, they've, they've outperformed their shot quality with faults on the court and underperformed it with Simmons on the bench. And, you know, there's no, even though Simmons himself is a little bit a part of that, he's, he's underperformed his shot quality in a way that he didn't last season, even with his unwillingness to, uh, to shoot from the perimeter. Uh, but, you know, I don't think that's likely something that's going to continue. And then also now uh, we've got this question of just kind of what are they going to look like? How different are they going to look with Jimmy Butler in the lineup? And without Dario Saric, who was one of those players who was underperforming and was probably due to play better, I think you know that's, that actually was probably the best part of this trade for the Sixers is the fact that they traded Saric when he was struggling so much because they were bound to, to play a little better either way. And now it's going to look like it's because of the Jimmy Butler trade and not just because uh, – uh, they, they've regressed to the mean. I always well, find that. Oh, I'm sorry, Brian. No, please go ahead. I, I always find kind of two starters for one starters. Obviously, Butler's the best player in the deal. It, it's unquestionable. There's always interesting to evaluate, and and Pelton, you probably have to do this, which is for practical effect. If we're looking at what did the Sixers get and what did they give up, they traded Sarich and Covington, and let's forget the peripheral assets right now, for Butler, 
and whoever else is going to take those minutes who might already be on their roster, right? Like, mm-hmm. when you evaluate a trade and you start projecting forward, what you're taking are Covington's minutes and Sarge's minutes, tossing them out, bringing in Pe- Butler's minutes, and then whatever else, like that replacement player. And maybe if they get Reddick back on the floor with the starters and they, they kind of go small and, and Simmons plays the defensive four, but the offensive one, uh, you know, maybe there, there's some other guys in the roster, maybe Wilson Chandler as he gets healthier becomes that guy. But that's the big question for me is, A, to your extent, what is it's because you said earlier, what is it going to look like just very basically? They're a very unconventional offensive team, right? They play pick and roll less than any team in the league. Um, they are a, a really interesting kind of mosaic of styles, and you got the old post ups to to Embiid, but you got a lot of motion sets, and and then you got this weird thing where their backcourt doesn't shoot, which is a completely non current <laughs> thing. <laughs> that, you know, that's a weird the, thing indeed. Yeah, you know, and so and then Butler, who's this uh, is somewhat more conventional wing, right? A bit, you know, athletic wing who can you know, make plays off the bounce for himself, occasionally for others. So. That's the big question for me is, you know, what does, not only does, what does it look like from a scheme standpoint, but like who takes those minutes? Um, do we definitively know what the closing lineup, uh, you know, of the Philadelphia 76ers is going to be? Um, well, and now Kevin, I think in, Simmons, in, Simmons role changes a bit, I think now. I think Fultz's role changes too, such as it is. Uh, in talking to people in the league since the deal, a lot of executives believe that the Sixers have another trade coming. Uh, whether or not they have it arranged yet or whether or not they're going to have to do it because, as you mentioned, their team's a little bit unbalanced. They're missing, frankly, they're missing a power forward now. Um, mm-hmm. And it depends on, again, I think does I do think it depends on what Wilson Chandler does for them. But um, they now have one too many two guards. You know, they already were dealing with with Fultz and Reddick awkwardness. Now they introduce one of the better two guards in the league. The guy is going to play, you know, 37 minutes. They have too many two guards and not enough power forwards. Seems to me that a two guard for power forward trade is out there in the offing. And what that is, we'll see in the coming weeks. But you can see just as you're, you're, you're sort of doing some gymnastics there, uh, Arnovitz to try to figure it out. Um, you know, having Ben Simmons want to defend power forwards and stuff like that. I don't know how that's going to fly. Boy, how different would this team, and, and especially post the Jimmy Butler trade. I know where you're going with this. Actually, I know where you're going with this. actually signed Nemanja Bialica over the summer as they thought mm-hmm. they had done. And, and, you know, he's not going to keep shooting 50-plus from three as he did for the Kings early this season, one reason that they've been uh, outperforming their numbers so far. But he would be able to slide into that charish spot and give you – relatively similar production at a, a great value if they had actually that's, been able to uh, that, That's a small sample size theater too, B. Leitz's uh, performance for the Kings so far. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that was such a strange story. I don't know if, how many people, you really would have been paying close to the attention to the NBA to, to know about this. He signed a one-year deal, or, he, or I shouldn't say he, he didn't sign it, he agreed to it. Um, right. What was, how much was it for, do you remember? Like four and a half million? It would have been for the room mid level, so uh, which is four and a half, right? Isn't that yeah, right? Yeah, four point four five. Okay, so then he backs out of the, the the agreement and tells the Sixers, if I'm not mistaken, that he wanted to go play in Europe. That it that you know, after being in the NBA for a couple of years, he misses Europe. He misses his family. He's going to go back and play in Europe. And the Sixers are like. All right. Well, you've you've put us in a tough spot here. We planned our team around having you, um, but okay. You know, we don't want an unhappy player on our team. We'll let you out of the uh, out of the commitment. And then they ended up going and making the Wilson Chandler move, where they absorbed him into into space. I don't I think, think it was necessarily Chandler move either first or simultaneously. Because, oh, okay. You know, okay. they that's how they that's where they used their space, and then yeah, they were going to use their their post space oh, right. room mid level. Okay, Bielitsa. All right. Well, anyway, uh, Bielitsa backs out, and then a few days, like, it, it wasn't that much time, was it? So he gave an interview to, I want to say it was The Athletic. I think, yeah, I think it was, must have been John Krasinski uh, for The Athletic, where he said that, you know, if you parse the words very carefully, he said, uh, I don't want to move my family around. 
I would either like a long-term deal in the NBA or to go back to Europe. And then lo and behold, he gets a three-year deal from the Kings. And how much, but it was only two years guaranteed. Am I correct in saying that? That is correct, yes. And and it was for more money, but not dramatically more. It was pretty dramatically. I mean, 6.5 this year, 6.825 next year. Okay, but, okay. I mean, so, so, right. So he gets a two-year guarantee versus a one-year guarantee, and he gets $13 million guaranteed as opposed to $4.5 million guaranteed. So basically he just, he you know, what I would have said to him is, well, if you wanted a longer-term offer, then why did you agree to a one-year deal? You know, I mean, I, I, it's a, you know, um, do you remember when this happened with John Salmons? Do you guys remember this one? Kevin Arnovitz, do you remember this? Was this when he was in Chicago? I do not remember that. He committed to signing with the Raptors. Then he backed out of the deal because he said God told him not to sign there. Well, very different than when, when uh, God told Ellen Iverson to choose Memphis. Right. Could you imagine, then, like, if there was a quake, Brian, can you imagine if there is indeed a God, but he only spoke to basketball players about contractual matters? Well, but then Salmon's also signed in Sacramento for more uh-huh. money. So this is twice in the last, like, decade where the Kings have benefited. Like, all the things that go against the Kings, well, how about... Three times, because Yogi, I guess Yogi Ferrell, I don't know if we know if that was divinely inspired. Right. That's right, Yogi Ferrell. What I mean, is going is on of, with this? Well, I'll tell you what's going on, right? Like, like the cap management is so Byzantine and so complicated that, you know, you there's always this trust, right, which is these guys agree to these deals, but there's certain cap gymnastics that have to go on. Hey, sit tight. We want to work you into this slot, but we first have to go take care of these other things in sequence in order to be able to afford. And everybody to kind of just trust that everybody, before anybody picks up a pen to sign a contract, You're does right. this, right? And You're so, right. you know, Philadelphia knew they wanted Bielitsa, and they wanted, but they needed to use their cap and you know, sit tight. They trust them. And then Sacramento swoops in. And if you, depending on who you talk to in the league, it's always a very interesting thing. Like, did, is all fair in love and war? Did Sac come in and kind of violate the unwritten codes of uh, free agency? And, and, or, hey, Philly, you know, you gotta, you can't just, you gotta, if you want, know you want a guy, you gotta because sign on the dotted line, do whatever preparations you need to within the framework of your cap to get it done. And uh, but Philly had to go out and do these gymnastics. And yeah. um, all right, before we go, uh, but I agree with you uh, that not having Bielitsa is dramatically affecting the Seventy Sixers. But you, but you think Pelton that the Seventy Sixers will this trade will signal a? I mean, you know, they're not a five hundred team. They're, I mean, they're eight and six. But you think that this will catapult them? I, I think a little bit. I mean, I think. You know, the the interesting thing to go back to Kevin's original point about the the minutes they've lost and how they're going to fill them is that, you know, it's partially because uh, RPM has rated Robert Covington so highly and, and probably more highly than I think any of us would just subjectively. But, you know, I plugged the, the new lineups into the original preseason projections and Philly actually, I think, dropped a little bit rather than improving despite getting, you know, the best player in the trade and Jimmy Butler just because of the fact that you've got so many minutes that we're going to quality starters that now are either going to Chandler of whom I'm skeptic or a skeptic or lower even on the rotation than that, because this is a team with a lot of injury question marks. And at this point, you know, 10 guys you can really count on to play rotation, rotation caliber minutes. So I think you have to, uh, to go out, as you said, I think this has to be the precursor to something else. And one of the things that I think was going to be really fascinating over the next couple of months, I feel like where Kyle Corver goes could end up like having an, an, a massive impact on the Eastern Conference, assuming it's if it, it's one of those contenders, well, right? But hey. Philly, Philly still has some expiring contracts they can do business with. They have Chandler, they have Mike Muscala, they have Reddick. Although Reddick can block a trade, um, but we talked about this in the pot over the weekend. Yes, Mr. Arnovitz, what were you saying? I want to ask Pelton, and for that matter, you is a team you follow. So, if you look at the Minnesota Timberwolves. And obviously they lost an impact player, their best player, um, in terms of production, if not potential. Um, you look at that starting five, and you know what? It's kind of interesting. 
In Covington, they get the kind of player they've been missing for a very long time. Um, a starting 3-4 who, when he's, can shoot a little bit and might be one of the most versatile defenders in the league at his position. What if they get good Dario, okay, to put next to Towns? Uh, you know, you know, Wiggins is obviously always going to be this, this, this issue we have to deal with potential versus production. Um, you know, Jeff Teague's been hurt in and out, but they're getting good production from Rose. Like, is it crazy to say that they're still very much in playoff contention when you add up all the pieces and, and, you know, look at obviously the talent of Towns and, and just what they get now defensively with, with Covington and, and Sarge, by the way, is not a terrible defender at all. Well, um, I think I think they got to play Derrick Rose less. <laughs> Derrick right. Rose is playing too much. No, no, um, and we would see coming back. Let's say, yeah, Teague is getting close to coming back. One of the things I think benefits them is yes, they're four and nine, but the West isn't. There's a lot of teams sort of puttering in the West. Um, you know, uh, you know, they're they've dropped to the standings, but it's not like there's seven teams in the West that are already six games over five hundred. So they're, they're, they have some, they have some window where if they start to play better, they can, you know, because this is one of the things I, saw, I thought at the start of the season was if you had a bad two weeks in the West, it would take you two months to overcome it. But you have New Orleans sputtering, you have Houston sputtering, the Lakers are 500. Um, uh, you know, a few teams have impressed us, you know, but the, the Jazz sputtering, the, the uh, the the uh, the thunder came out of the box, sputtering a little bit. The the Spurs are you know okay, but only a little bit above five hundred. So um, I think they've got a, a fighting uh, shot on that. But Pelton, unless you have a real something really to say here, I just want to squeeze in uh, before we go. So the Raptors are twelve and one. Um, they've done it despite Kawhi missing some games. Are they number one in um, point differential? It no, I mean, like they're, they're actually they're they're behind Milwaukee in the East, and then also behind Golden State, and I think they might be behind someone else too. Uh, what do we think about the Raptors? I mean, are they going to be a sixty-five win team? I mean, what do we think about? They're tied with Portland for third. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I think so. I mean, my takeaway from watching them the uh, other real day quick, when uh, Portland Portland has had a preposterous home road imbalance. I mean, they're doing great. I think they've played nine home games and four road games so far. So just they're, they're small sample size on that. But okay, sorry, I will shut up. Go ahead on Toronto. Although still, I mean, in the in the West, you feel like Portland, who who knows they could be the second best team in the West because who knows who that is at this point. Uh, Toronto, but uh, I was watching them their matinee yesterday or Saturday against New York, and uh, the takeaway was this team is almost boring in how good they are because of the fact that you know the Knicks can maybe hang around for a quarter or two or you know just be in the game, and then Kawhi will get a steal and turn it into a layup at the other end, and. You know, Fred Van Vliet will hit a three, or Danny Green will hit a three, and they just have so many good players that they're just going to kind of grind teams down. And uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, despite what I said about Milwaukee earlier and their point differential and how excited I am about them, I, I still think Toronto is the heavy favorite to finish with the best record in the Eastern Conference, and you know, maybe a decent chance at finishing with the best record in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I love them is I was looking at sort of so they have this this three-man unit of, of Lowry, Green, and Leonard. And it's like, okay, who do you put around them? Do you do the conventional bigs? You got you got Valanchunas. We have Ibaka, who's a little bouncy or not as conventional, but still that. You could do Ananobi and shift uh, Leonard up to the four. Siakam has been a revelation. He's this really versatile, um, kind of really unique player with a skill set that kind of downsize or upsize. And it doesn't matter. Like, they are killing teams no matter who those other two guys. And what I love about a team in this day and age is they can be whoever they want to be. They want to be the conventional big team with two bigs? Fine. Great. You want to be the small ball Leonard at the four? Fine. You want to have five shooters out there with Siakam as as the only, quote, big? Fine. Uh, you want to pair that? And that's what I love about Toronto is they can be whoever they want to be on a given possession, on a given night, in a given quarter. And that's where I just think they're so strong. Siakam is shooting 63% from the field so far. Just hunting down good shots because he's not a good right, outside right. He shooter. takes no bad shots. Right. Um, when he has a shot, he takes it. When he doesn't have a shot, he looks he to moves. create. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't. They are in the bottom half of the league in three point percentage. Um, there's a couple of guys on their team who are not shooting the ball. Like you know, Lowry is under forty percent. Um, uh, uh, CJ Miles has been terrible from three point range so far. He's a he's a guy who runs hot and cold. Um, you know, uh, Ananobi and Fred Van Vliet, two guys that you expect to shoot the ball good, you know, better than they have been from, from three point range. Ibaka is shooting a much less volume of three pointers, but he's, his percentage is also down. So if you're looking for where they could improve, maybe they're actually not shooting as well as they can from three point range. And maybe that number will actually increase. I mean, I look at them and they've also had a reasonably difficult schedule. They've already, they, you know, like, um, like Mil- like you know, the one thing about Milwaukee, uh, Boston, and Toronto, they've all made their first West Coast trip. Um, you know, sometimes you see these teams that haven't gone west yet, and they their their, their schedule is a little bit inflated. You know, Milwaukee's record is what it is. T- Toronto was twelve and one, and they've already been to the West. Now, granted, they didn't they didn't play the the all the hardest teams out there, but they they played a road back to back in Salt Lake and and kicked Salt Lake's uh, tail. Um, uh, Right, without Kawhi, um, you know they've, um, you know that's that, that's one of the things that impressive about me is their schedule also favors Toronto after you know with this start. Yeah, I mean, I you know this is just they're just a really impressive team. I think the one important thing about the the good start, you know, Kevin mentioned the way they're they're rotating guys in and out of the starting lineup in the front court. I feel like if you're struggling, that's going to get really frustrating in a hurry. But if you're 12 and one and everything's going great, it's hard to be upset about that. Um, all right, is there any before we go? Is there any like, um, hey, uh, I can't believe this player is going to keep it up, or I, I expect this guy to rally uh, massively? Um, do you do you have you know? Is there anything like that's still in your notebook that's sticking way out? Kevin, you want to go? Dominic Sabonis is the best player in the NBA. It is, it is, it is for real. That is large sample size theater. This guy is outrageous now. I, I, um, that, that's my favorite of the early season uh, small sample size theater uh, items. He's a very nice player, but obviously he, he, he will not keep this up. But um, look, the quality of his play is sort of one of the things that I think is keeping Indiana's where who was one of those. Yeah, it was last year a, a, an outlier teams. Yeah, kind of squarely st- in the middle of the pack in the East. You stole mine, Kevin, because his PER is twenty six point three right now. He's a monster, which is like not it, it's not quite MVP level, but that's like all NBA level PER. He's shooting sixty eight percent from the field uh, to this point. Uh, no, no three pointers. Let's just do threes. Just um, you know, again, hunts good shots. Um, uh, certainly a most improved uh, candidate, but uh, that was a guy who I'm like every single night. I, in fact, I even told Andrew Hahn the other day, I go, I'm looking for him in the box score uh, every night just to see what he's doing. But uh, Pelton, is there somebody for you? Yeah, Sabonis, uh, I broke that down. His shot quality so far this year has been 1.8% better than last year. <clears throat> in terms of like the the effective field goal percentage, his shot making has been 14% better. So, uh, <laughs> okay, so I see what you're So sell that stock, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> okay, damn. And Miles, Miles damn. Turner's probably going to shoot better than 12.5% on threes this year. So that, the gap between those two guys might close up. I mean, do we want to talk about, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, do we want to talk about Brandon Ingram and whether he's going to uh, continue to, to kind of scuffle along as he has in this new role alongside LeBron? He doesn't, you know, beyond his statistics, he just he looks miserable. Not that I'm an expert in, in, in uh, Brandon Ingram uh, body language because I haven't watched him a heck of a lot, but he just looks miserable at times out there. And it's a really hard transition for guys who play that position. I mean, Brian, you know this. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm very bullish on Brandon Ingram just in general and in, in skill set. I thought he made amazing strides last year. I, I still think he might be their second best player, but um, it's really hard to figure this out, isn't it? I mean, playing with LeBron is a privilege, and it is a challenge, and especially if that he has been evolving a certain way in a very specific scheme for his entire career. And now this happens and it uses a seismic shift. It is rearranging all the furniture in your house and you're walking around blindfolded. 
And it's not so good because the Lakers really need to increase his value in, you know, certainly to play with LeBron, but in theory, if a trade becomes available in the next, you know, six to eight months, you know, let's just call it what it is. Let's say Anthony Davis becomes available. You want to be able to have that piece to offer and you don't want to be offering him when he's coming off of his worst year, not his best year. Where do you think that is right now? Have you talked to people? I mean, are there still, you know, strong Brandon Ingram believers who, who think he's a, you know, multi-time future all-star? There's an executive that I have a long-term relationship with who was a big Brandon Ingram fan when he came out of uh, Duke, told me that he felt like he was going to be a world-class scorer, um, and we've had this sort of back and forth. Uh, and Lino, I was not, I didn't, I was not a believer in Brandon Ingram. And then his second half of last year, he was really good, right? I mean, he he was really making progress. And the guy was like, "I told you, I told you." And then you know, by the time he's in year three, he's going to get his feet up underneath him. And um, you know, the, the the guy was 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 lording over me. And now he's like, "It's not working with LeBron." And you know, he doesn't really want to blame Ingram. You know, I think he's more concerned about where he is with LeBron. So I think that's I think that's the encouraging thing for the Lakers if they are thinking about it in terms of his trade value. If if kind of that LeBron factor ends up getting the the being the uh, explanation for this, then maybe teams will continue to value him like they did before. Uh, it's not good either way. Um, all right, thank you guys um, for joining us for small sample size. Is, is there a point in the season? Where we can say this is large sample size theater. When is that threshold? I mean, there's there's no one point. You know, people uh, they kind of look for that, but I think you know at the team level in particular, twenty games by that point it starts to pretty well shake out. All right, Andrew, put us down your calendar. The last week of the season in April, we're going to have large sample size theater. <laughs> Isn't that just the standings? Yes. Thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective podcast. What are they supposed to do, Brian Andrew? Horse in the Hoop Collective. Uh, Subscribe, rate, and review. Is that what it is? Yes. So I should yes. go subscribe. That's what you're saying. To this one at least. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>